everyone. Welcome to Native Minnesota, a podcast about the Native American experience in Minnesota and beyond. I'm your host, Rebecca Crook Stratton, Secretary Treasurer of the Shakopee Midwakton Sioux Community, also known as the SMSC. This podcast is a project of Understand Native Minnesota, a campaign focused on improving the narrative about Native Americans in Minnesota's public schools. Today, I'm joined by Monique Gray-Smith, an award-winning author and sought-after consultant of Cree, Lakota, and Scottish descent. We discuss how Monique's books are used to share Indigenous wisdom, knowledge, and hope with people of all ages. Monique shares how her work conveys themes of resilience and reciprocity, particularly the importance of being in a reciprocal relationship with the land and living things. We also talk about her new book, Braiding Sweetgrass for Young Adults, and how the adaptation came to be. Monique shares her belief that love is medicine and the healing powers of being outdoors. Please enjoy. I am here joined by Monique Gray-Smith, who is a best-selling and award-winning author and um, advisor, uh, among many other things. So welcome. We're really excited to have you on the podcast today. Mm, Thank you. We're immensely grateful to be here with you. Wonderful. Monique, you have done a lot of things, um, but are currently an author. Um, Could you tell us maybe a little bit about your background and how that led you uh, Mm. into writing? I'm formally trained as a psychiatric nurse and was working in acute psych and was dismayed with the way our people mostly were treated in medical systems. So I applied to the School of Social Work. And when I went down for my interview, I had to write this personal statement about why I wanted to be a social worker. And when I went down for my interview, when it was done, I had my hand on the door and one of those women of the five panel said, I look forward to reading your book one day. And I didn't think she was talking to me. At that point, I was six months sober. And I hadn't graduated from high school. I'd gone back, but I hadn't graduated. So I had a lot of self-limiting beliefs. And so I kept opening that door. And she said, wait, Monique, I'm talking to you. I look forward to reading your book one day. I was like, what is she talking about? And I got out of that room as fast as I could. And I was covered in goosebumps. And But that was the first message. The first kind of person who saw one of the gifts that I'd been blessed with and spoke the future. And then for 20 years, I kept getting messages. And it wasn't until a near-death experience that I actually started to write. And um, my first book came out two years, or pardon me, 10 years ago. That is an amazing story. And I think it speaks to the power of believing in people and and pointing that out and voicing Mm -hmm. that to the world. And I I think you do that uh, through your writing. Mm -hmm. Um, You've written several children's books. Well, really kind of... Uh, you've written about things that that everyone um, can relate mm-hmm. to at some point from child to adulthood. Um, what was one of the first books you wrote? I wrote my first book was actually self-published and then it got picked up by a publisher because I didn't know anything about publishing. All I knew was I had to listen to the message or else I might not get another chance. And so I self-published and it got picked up and it was called Tilly, a story of hope and resilience. And it's loosely based on my life. But through the characters that Tilly meets, they tell aspects of Canada's history, specifically uh, how those policies and legislations have impacted us as Indigenous people and our relationships with non-Indigenous people. That was the first book. And about a year after it came out, it won a national award. 
And it kind of changed everything for me because I was like, okay, there's the book. I'm done. I, I listened to the message. I'm all done. <laughs> but apparently I wasn't. <laughs> so then a children's book came and um, called My Heart Fills With Happiness. And it, it opened doors. And, you know, that book was inspired by witnessing a grandmother hold her grandson's face in, his, in her hands and looking at him with so much love that then his whole body changed. And what I saw was his heart fill with happiness by how she looked at him. And so that was the inspiration for that book. And I share that because in psychiatric nursing, in nursing, I think they teach you to pay attention. And there's stories everywhere in the world when we're paying attention. But if we get on our phone or we're not paying attention, we miss all these stories that are everywhere or inspiration for stories. That's a wonderful uh, story. I mean, just that that love, seeing that, mm-hmm. that that's amazing. Um, you often talk about love as medicine. Um, it's definitely a, a reoccurring theme mm-hmm. um, for you. And, you know, where did that come from? Did you have, uh, were you nurtured like that? And, and you know, how, how do you uh, kind of implement that in the way you live today? Mm-hmm. Uh, Both of my parents had a hard time nurturing my sister and I in that way. Uh, One, my, both of them worked a lot, um, I think, to just kind of get by. But I had an Auntie Ellen who was, I call her my cookie person. I use that term. They're these people that are in our lives that when we're in their presence, we feel bigger and better about ourselves. And I don't mean like about our ego, right? But just we're with them and we feel seen and we feel valued and we feel loved. And that's like medicine. So she was my cookie person. And ironically, she was also a psychiatric nurse. (laughs) But I think, you know, what unfolded in our house for both my sister and I, because of what we didn't get, we have cultivated in our own lives. And I don't say that in a derogatory way to my parents. I know, and I don't mean this kind of in, you know, the modern woo-woo way that oh they did the best they could but they really did at the time what they could and so my sister and I have both found ways now to fill needs that weren't met when we were children and I think that love is a medicine that we both cultivate very consciously in our lives um you know as an indigenous author is there a different kind of satisfaction you get from writing um and then you know you've written fiction and nonfiction. do you prefer one over the other oh I prefer fiction because you can make all kinds of things up (laughs) (laughs) and also for me with fiction is the characters come and they help guide the process you know um I get woken up often at 4 or 4 30 in the morning by one of those characters and They've got a plan that was not in my outline at all. And they've got, you know, a new element to their character that I'm like, oh. So I feel like when I write fiction, I go on a journey with these characters. And even when the book is complete, I feel like they're part of my family. Whereas nonfiction is a little more rule-oriented, and I'm not really a fan of rules. (laughs) So nonfiction is hard for me to write, and I've only done two um, speaking Our Truth, A Journey of Reconciliation, and then the adaptation, uh, Braiding Sweetgrass for Young Adults. And those might be the only two I do. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of braiding sweetgrass for young adults, um, you were here uh, a few months ago uh, as part of the Understand Native Minnesota campaign. Uh, you graciously gave us your time and did some tours and really shared with educators and students um, the value of that book and, mm-hmm. and kind of how to use it. Uh, can you talk about, you know, maybe uh, being approached to, to do the adaptation, um, kind of your, your process and um, kind of how that went? Mm-hmm, for sure. Uh, the first phone call I got, I think it was 2019, and it was a Cherokee author named Tracy Sorrell. And she called saying, you know that Lerner has got the rights to adapt braiding sweetgrass and they're going to want to do a young adult adaptation. And I just laughed and I was like, good luck to whoever's going to do that. Because <laughs> when I first read Braiding Sweetgrass in 2015, I just read the prologue and I had to put it down for a little bit and just let all that was in there find its rightful place. So I thought whoever was going to do that, that was going to be a tough task. And then she said, well, I put your name for it. And I was like, ha, 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 I just laughed. And then about two years later, the phone call actually came to begin the process. And my first step was to reach out to Robin Wall Kimmerer and say, could we have a visit? Because they could take care of all the business things over here, but I wanted to make sure I was a fit for her. Because I feel like Braiding Sweetgrass is, is a sacred text that there's much in there, the stories, the teachings, the wisdom, um, the thinking about our future, how we want to be together, that I wanted to ensure, excuse me, it's like how in so much in the book, there's the talk about the teachings around gifts, and with our gifts, there's responsibility. I felt like there was a huge responsibility to do this in the best way possible. When it all unfolded, I had six months and a third of the word count. And the first thing I did was I went on a retreat for a week to this beautiful retreat center where they feed you like three meals a day and four snacks a day. So all you have to do is create. And I had these, had these big white flip charts and I had orange stickies for each chapter and then green stickies for teachings of the plants, pink stickies for indigenous wisdom, and then pastel for scientific knowledge to make sure there was still a balance. And I couldn't say, what am I cutting or what am I removing? I had to say, what are we leaving for when the reader reads the original manuscript? Because it felt disrespectful to say, oh, cut this and cut that. And at every step, I visited with Robin to say, so here's what I'm wanting to include, but we're over the word count. Do you have any suggestions? And so she had some suggestions. And and working with Nicole Neidhart, the illustrator, was another incredible gift that Each chapter now has a beautiful illustration by her. So six months of intense work, for sure. And my process was I'd get up at 4.30 in the morning and write until about lunchtime. And I live a block from this beautiful forest, so I'd go in there after lunch or work in the garden. And I would put my AirPods in and listen to Robin Reed, Braiding Sweetgrass, listen to the next section that I was going to work on the next day. And then at night I would tinker. And because every word counted, it would be like, it's so a one I can remove. And so it was, it was an intense process, but also other than Tilly and the Crazy Eights, it's probably the most joyous project I've worked on. Six months. That mm-hmm. seems really quick. <laughs> How long does it usually take you to write a book from oh. beginning to end? Yeah. Uh, Tilly and the Crazy Eights was about two years. 
because I have a small business, so I'm balancing and I have twins who are 19. So, you know, life is full. And um, to be able to just clear my calendar for six months was, was an interesting process, but also a gift. I, I can imagine that was a really fulfilling project because it was just a wonderful book. And yeah, I, I had the opportunity. I listened to uh, the original. Uh, text and then um, I read the the young adult mm. version and the illustrations were absolutely wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, that book, like one of the main themes I felt in the book was reciprocity, um, and I think as Indigenous people, that's you know a theme that goes across mm-hmm. all of our our cultures. And um, you know when you were when you were doing that book and you know thinking about reciprocity and uh, your kind of gift to, uh, to that adaptation. Um, you know, what, what was your thinking as far as, um, you know, how you were going to give back to the world through that book? Mm. I actually never really thought about that. I think because it felt like such a responsibility. I think that's part of the reciprocity, right? Is that there's also a responsibility with it. And I wasn't sure how like I didn't see how or I didn't plan how the book would necessarily give back to me was like how can I be of service to this book and because I think for me the working on the adaptation was the gift that was my reciprocal so anything else that now happens is like a bonus but that was the reciprocalness and one night I was working and my wife said to me how's it going over there and I said just when I've worked on the most beautiful chapter, there's another one. And so I think that was the reciprocity for me, right? It was that it helped to heal some wounds for me. It also reminded me so much of my childhood and all the time that we did spend outside. My parents were, we were often outside, out on the land. We were one of those families that would harvest wood that had been falled and never picked up and my dad would sell cords of wood. So, those were some of the gifts for me of, of the reciprocity of doing the work. It's doing the work, but there were gifts that came back to me. And I think that there are gifts that continue to come back when people said, I read this and now I'm thinking differently. Like that to me is also a gift. When they read, they're like, oh, I never thought about reciprocity. It's amazing to me, Rebecca, how many mostly non-Indigenous people say, what does reciprocity mean? If braiding sweetgrass for young adults does nothing else but helps people to understand reciprocity, yeah. wow. Which is really just respect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you have respect for everything and it respects you back, mm-hmm. um, kind of at its basic, mm-hmm. I would say. And I think in Indigenous cultures, you know, we look at and braiding sweetgrass, you know, talks about the right way to harvest something and, you know, you give a gift of tobacco or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever it is um, before you take that, that plant and just making sure that there's that respect between uh, person and plant. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Um, yeah. Out of, you know, there were so many wonderful teachings in that book. Uh, Reciprocity was one of them. Did you have a particular favorite as you were yeah. going through? The chapter Witch Hazel. That's actually written by Robin Wall Kimmerer's daughter, Larkin. 
And it's the story about her as a little girl witnessing her mom's friendship with this elder named Hazel, an unlikely friendship. And it's just this beautiful chapter about kindness and about a reminder that the children are watching us and a reminder that we can love people who we might not have ever thought would be part of our lives, but they become really important people. To learn more about Monique Gray-Smith, her books, and teaching resources, visit her website at moniquegraysmith.com. She has a range of online learning resources, including courses on speaking with children and young people about truth and reconciliation, and the ripple effect of resilience, an Indigenous perspective. Her website also has a video library with educational topics and videos of Monique reading from her children's books, as well as links to purchase her books. Now back to our episode. So braiding sweetgrass is really, a lot of it is about connection to the land and, you know, as an Indigenous person, what that means. Um, and I think our, in a lot of ways in modern society, we've lost our connection mm. to the land and our connection to the natural world. Uh, but it's so important. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, your connection to the land and, and how that, you know, helps you in your life? Oh, we could do a few hours. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly because I feel like um, probably since my twins were born that I have felt more of a, more of an awareness around the connection. Like I think I felt it as a child. And then in those late teen years, probably mostly when I was drinking, I got disconnected. And that's part of probably why I was so immersed in, in that journey. But then when my kids were born, I started to notice the water in a different way. And I started to think about, what if actually I turned on this tap and nothing came out? Or if it was polluted, like many of our communities in where I come from in Canada are, and so I started to ensure that every single day we spent at least an hour outside with our children. And one of the things I would notice is if they were like grumpy or, you know, at three years old, what can happen sometimes, almost as soon as we got outside, everything changed, especially on a sunny day, right? When the sun hits our eyelids, it releases that vitamin D, which releases serotonin. So we feel better. And six years ago, we moved and we have a bigger yard now. So I've got a garden. I'm growing sweetgrass. I'm growing tobacco. And when I go out there, I'm just like, oh. I was visiting with you earlier saying, I go home and that's what I'll be doing. I'll be outside and just tinkering. And sometimes it's not even like you can see anything has really been done. But I have been replenished just by picking a few weeds, talking to the plants, saying to my sweetgrass, I'll move a little more dirt so you got a little more room to grow. It helps to heal me. And I think one of the important things uh, I learned from doing the adaptation is that we, we can heal from the land, but we don't always have to go to the land or the water just when we need healing. But every single day, we can be nourished so that when the hard things come, because they do, we have more inner fortitude in order to be able to deal with things when we get sideswiped on a Tuesday afternoon. Mm -hmm. Yep, uh, I agree. I mean, just the ability to get outside and take a walk and breathe in fresh air. And, um, yes, it definitely, it helps. 
yesterday I just went downstairs for a few moments and the wind was blowing and I was like, I put my arms, I'm like, okay, blow off everything I don't need to carry anymore. Thank you for that gift, right? Like just yeah. a minute outside and I came back in and I felt rejuvenated and replenished. And We, we definitely need to get outside more often, <laughs> uh, especially in these cold areas where winter seems to last forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely looking forward to, to spring. Um, all right, I'm going to switch directions a little bit. All right. Um, so we're recording uh, this episode uh, here in Minnesota. We're at Mystic Lake Center. Uh, and you were one of the presenters at our first ever Understand Native Minnesota Educators Academy, uh, which was a huge success, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, that academy offered some professional development workshops to introduce our K-12 through educators to a variety of ways to teach uh, Native American topics in the classroom setting. Um, one of the sessions you led was on leading with a light heart. Would you like to talk a little bit about that session? Sure. I call it leading with a light heart because educators are caring a lot today in many ways. And so it comes back where I start with is how are you nourishing your spirit, which is different than self-care. There's been so much through the pandemic. There's been so much push for educators and healthcare staff to self-care. But nourishing our spirit is different. So, for example, like if I go for a walk in my home community in the neighborhood, that's self-care. But if I go for a walk in the forest, it's nourishing my spirit. So my invitation with them is like, how are you nourishing your spirit so that you can show up in the classroom in a way that holds space for learners to be curious, to critically think, to take perspective, to have feelings. And for you, the leading with the light heart is two ways actually like bringing light into the room. And the other is to have joy and laughter and lightness in the classroom. That when learning is always hard, young people and children get tired really easy. And so how do we bring some of that vivaciousness, that leading with a light, joyous heart into the classroom? So that's what we were talking about. I was introducing some of the books that I've written and that other people have written about how can you use these to lead with a light heart but that it really starts with each of them and nourishing their spirits. And like we said a few moments ago, not just in those times of crisis, but as a regular way of filling up so that they can be in the class in a, in a light way, both light and light. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's wonderful. Um, do you have any other advice for educators, especially when they're thinking about Indigenous perspectives and how to find materials and um, you know, what, what should they be looking for and where, where should they be looking mm-hmm. as they uh, are on that journey to teach a different perspective? Mm. Well, the first thing I'd say is go outside. <laughs> as much as absolutely possible, even for one minute, right? Or to listen to the sounds of nature when learners come in, that it's hard for us to talk about history, the truth of history. It's hard for us to understand a different worldview it's understand, hard for us to stand, understand different ways of knowing, being, and living in the world if our brain is flooded with cortisol, that stress hormone. And so for some educators who may not have learned the truth of history in school, they might not have learned around their dinner table or in teacher's college, and now we're asking them to teach it. It's a pretty vulnerable place. And so if they're able to lower their own stress hormone and lower the stress hormone of the learners by going outside right, that first inch and a half of the humus of the earth's floor, 
When we smell it, it lowers that stress hormone and increases oxytocin and dopamine, which are the love hormone and the hormone that kind of balances our brain. So just that those few moments outside set the brain up in order to be in conversation and to learn difficult aspects of history. So that's the place that I always start is like, how are you engaging the, the natural world outside? And how are you thinking about learning? Because often educators are thinking the learning is in the bricks and mortars of the building. But the learning is outside is equally as important. And do they have plants in their class? Do they have, if it's possible, you know, anybody with feathers or fur or even slitherers in the class? Because the more we bring all of what is actually our relatives into the space, the more awake the learners will be. And when they're awake, they understand history in a different way. And part of the conversation always is too, is when you go home, how do you have these conversations? And I think that's one of the beautiful gifts of Understand Native Minnesota, is that you're starting to break some of the cycles around what has always been perhaps taught in school or around the dinner table in regards to the stereotypes and the untruths of history. And so now that's beginning to shift. And it will take a few years till we see that big shift. But what excites me is like these young people who are learning the truth of history and are learning a, a different worldview, they're going to be the CEOs, they're going to be the bank managers, they're going to be the treasurers, the secretaries. They're going to be the educators, the nurses, and they will make different decisions because their implicit biases or biases will be less. And I think that that is immeasurable in when we look at our common humanity, that it's, I'm really touched by what I understand Native Minnesota, the generosity, yes, it's going to make me cry, but the generosity of spirit, Yeah. I've told the story to so many people about my experience here at the beginning of November. And um, how incredibly powerful. Not only the generosity of spirit, but the, finish, the vision for what can be and where it needs to start with the children and young people. I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've experienced. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, it it has been powerful, and I've definitely had those tears of joy and gratefulness mm -hmm. as we've been on this journey. So um, it's very rewarding. It's very rewarding. But narrative change work is it's hard work too, right? Um, the educators that we've been working with and our partners across the state have been um, really great, and you know, eager and hungry for information and learning. But there's always that you know opposition or that mm -hmm. want to keep the status quo mm -hmm. with the narrative. Um, in the work that you do, you know, how, how do you address uh, kind of a balance of, you know, moving forward at the right speed to change the narrative, um, but not, you know, kind of putting people back because they're scared? Like, how do we deal with that fear as, mm -hmm. you know, Indigenous people and wanting the truth of history and the truth of present to be told? Do you have any? Yeah, I was really interested years ago. I did a session um, in Calgary and I didn't realize, I mean, I should have clued in when they picked me up with a limousine that I was going to a private school. <laughs> and I, because 
what I often start with is the neurobiology of trauma and what happens. And that often fear, the epigenetics of fear, begins to unfold. And so, you know, that blood memory we have of our ceremonies, our songs, our ways of being um, are in our cells and they get woken up at different times. And this gentleman came down and he said, I think I understand why there's so much fear with white people. And he wasn't saying it like in a judgmental way. It was a big insight. He said, when you talk about epigenetics, he said, not only is the fear of potentially their lives having to change is happening, but also the generations that they've had this privilege is also waking up in their blood and going, no, that's why we're seeing such a voracious response is because it's their response, but also intergenerational. And so I think we have to move in a way that understands that neurobiology. Like how do we have these conversations? If their brains are flooded with cortisol and fear, we're not going to get anywhere. That's why with the educators, I'm always like, okay, so let's go outside or let's play some sounds of music to start. It's like that beautiful braid of sweetgrass in braiding sweetgrass for young adults that says, we have to unlearn hurrying. And so it is a slow process. And I think we take some steps forward and we take steps back. And I think we have to be patient at times. And then there's times I think we don't need to be patient. That we have to call the truth to the floor. And it doesn't mean, <clears throat> I think, you know, how when you talked about reciprocity as fundamentally being respectful, I think that that's how we do it. That I think sometimes people, if they have their back up, they're expecting us to come at them. But if we do it respectfully, then they're disarmed because they don't really know what to do because they've never had that response. Mm -hmm. Or with gratitude or with kindness, they're like, wait a minute, I came like to have a fight and you're treating me kindly? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... um. I think this is very exciting times in both education. And when I speak about education, I think about it like educating hearts and minds and spirits. And I think just that is a change in education because people are usually the mind, right? We're educating the mind. But when we talk about the hearts and spirits, when those open, that's when people make change. And I think that's a huge part of our journey is sharing the stories that open the hearts and minds that potentially don't traumatize somebody, but open their hearts yeah. so they begin to think differently. Um, I think it's, you know, not only the narrative change work that we're doing in the classrooms, um, but the systems which in, we're working in are, you know, still colonial systems. Mm -hmm. They're still very rigid and it's really hard to, um, you know, kind of change the way that happens. But we are seeing um, whether it's nature classrooms or, you know, different ways to educate our students to make sure we're educating in ways that that everybody can, um, you know, find their thing, find their piece, whether you're a visual learner, or, you know, a, a learner by doing and and that sort of stuff. So um, I guess my, my question to you is um, in education, like what are your suggestions for you know, working within the system, but making small incremental changes uh, so that we have a better system of education. Well, last night at the gathering at Birch Park, there was an educator and she was all excited to get an extra copy because she wanted to do a circle with Braiding Sweetgrass for Young Adults with the Native students. And I said, well, 
I said, can I ask you a question? And she said, sure. And I said, how come you're only doing this book club with the native students? Why not the non-native students? And she, you could just see, like, it was a whole new concept to her. And I think that in education, part of it is how do we find a path forward together? The division is what the systems have always wanted. And the division is what the systems still want because it separates us from being collectively powerful. And I don't mean power over, but like together, like how do we make change? And that change requires a lot of work. And there are people who are absolutely physically exhausted who are in leadership roles who don't want to make the change because of the amount of work. Yesterday in the session I did, there was a superintendent who said, I've never thought about saying to a young person that I see one of their gifts or to talk about their future. I said, I'm going to start doing that. And for a superintendent to have that kind of a shift, mm -hmm. you imagine then what begins to happen, right? So for me, yes, I love working with the children and young people, but I really love working with the educators and those in decision-making places. Because if we can help them move out of a threat of potentially what might happen to them or their role, but to think about our common humanity, then change happens. Yeah. Um, you know, as we've gone through this campaign, I've always said, uh, you know, that building those relationships and understanding each other is important. And I think as Native people, um, you know, well, values are similar. We definitely approach things a different way. And I have seen, you know, many times or experienced that, you know, light go on in somebody about, oh, you know, that's a really beautiful way to do that. So mm -hmm. thank you for your work with the educators and mm -hmm. helping turn those lights on, because uh, I think that's really important. And mm -hmm. it's helping bridge that gap uh, that Understand Native Minnesota is mm -hmm. really working to fill. So um, I, we're going to wrap up here. I, I could visit with you <laughs> forever, um, but I know we got time limits. Uh, is there anything else you want to share with us before we go? I think, you know, like just keep believing in the good medicine that's in people's hearts and minds and spirits and, and that bounty of good medicine will shift the systems. Sometimes not as fast as we want. <laughs> you know, I know I didn't see the shift in my children's experience in school, but I'm hopeful that when they have children and I have grandchildren, there will be a shift that's happening. And I do see it with my niece. You know, she's six years uh, younger, and so there are some shifts. So I think that's the piece is to keep doing the good work, to keep bringing good medicine to the good work. And when you need to rest, rest. Yeah. And, and have faith that somebody else will come along. Or if nobody else comes along, that the medicine you've laid down is doing its work while you rest. Um, you know, we've, we're very fortunate. We have um, many Native people uh, really coming out and sharing their gifts, whether it's, you know, authors or curriculum writers or, mm -hmm. you know, there's just many more resources out there than there used to be. And we know um, our Native people are very talented, um, but sometimes they need the encouragement to mm -hmm. keep going. Like, you know, you had your person that, that planted a seed. Um, for, for our Native people out there, do you have any advice for them? You know, if they're trying to get into um, the writing world and, and be published, uh, you know, how, any advice on how they would break into that? I always say go to the library or go to the bookstore 
and find books that are similar to the story or stories you want to tell. See who has published them, and then go to those publishers' websites and see what their submission requirements are. And then share your story. And sometimes there are some publishers who will have a conversation with you, which I think is so important. I think publishing, there are publishers who are beginning to understand that we visit in a different way, perhaps, that it isn't just the business of getting things in. And so seek publishers who have published books that resonate with you. That would be the first place. And if you need help writing the story, like I use my phone and I record because it's easier for me to tell a story than to type it or write it. And then I get it in my inbox as an email and there's the first draft. So to find ways to bring your story forth and to have faith that your story is important, whether it gets published or it gets shared in the school or you create a book yourself for your children, those stories are all valuable. and They're all important. If you're getting that message to write or to share a story, please listen. Finally, just any anything you're working on right now that uh, you can maybe share a little bit about so yeah. we have something to look forward to? <laughs> I'm working on, uh, I think it's for grade two to five or six, a children's book about a little boy named Charlie, who on Wednesday afternoons, um, there's nobody at home, both parents are working. And so he FaceTimes with his cookum, which is grandma in my language. And they just visit all Wednesday afternoon. And one Wednesday, he calls her, and he notices that she looks a little bit different. So he says, cook him like you look different. And she's like, oh, chum, I got my first drum today. And he's a bit confused. He's like, well, I'm eight years old, and you're 82. Why did you just get your first drum? And so she tells him about her experience and some of the policies and legislations that have impacted her and her... Uh, ability to understand culture, to know her language. And it's based on um, my mom and my stepdad live in Kamloops. All of my stepdad's family went to, to Kamloops to Sequetmec, which was the first school to publicly reveal the 215 children who didn't come home. And so on the one-year honoring of that public unveiling, they had a gathering at the Arbor on the Power Grants, and my mom and my, we call him Grandpa Buck, went and my mom received her first drum. So that was the nugget for this book. And then I'm working on an adult novel that is totally two Scottish sisters and totally different than anything I've done so far. Well, exciting. I can't wait for <laughs> both of those to come out. Um, yeah, and, and the children's book, you know, I love the modern element of mm. FaceTiming. Uh, <laughs> that's really relatable, especially with my kids. Mm -hmm. So, Monique, thank you so oh, much for you. being here uh, this whole week and mm -hmm. being on the podcast today. We so appreciate it. Thank you. Hi, hi. <laughs> thank you for joining me for the Native Minnesota podcast. For more episodes, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also visit our website, understandnativemn.org, to learn more about our campaign's work to improve the Native narrative in Minnesota's public schools.